Uh, wow, uh, you're probably wondering, dude, you just read an entire chapter of names. Good job, preacher boy. I'm so glad you paid for that Hebrew degree. Uh, so what's in a name? What does your name indicate about you? If you were to ask me about my name, I could tell you how I got it. Uh, some people would know right off the bat. Other people would look at me, and uh, as my friend would say, he appears to be some sort of ambiguously ethnic minority guy, is what he would say. But you would hear my last name, Hoppy, and you would know that I came from German or Dutch descent for either a door maker or beer maker. But what is the reputation of a Hoppy? What... what stories fill the name of Hoppy. My dad would say it means being a hard worker. Uh, my, he was a blue-collared person, and his family were a bunch of blue-collared people. My grandfather fought in World War II, put some of the first telephone lines into the Chrysler building in New York City. My father fought in Vietnam dropped after dropping out after his junior year in high school. My mother, she's a hard-working immigrant, her formal education, she stopped after uh, never really surpassed fifth grade in the Philippines before she started working full-time to help her impoverished mother and family. And even when she came to the United States, she worked two, maybe even three jobs in order to give her children a better life. You see, every name has a story. Your name has a story associated with it. It has a reputation, and it formulates and situates your world. And so all these names is to give light and understanding to the people how they got there and who these other people are. They have all these reputations behind it. So it tells them who they are. We do this with generational names. You know that? Uh, baby boomers. Uh, you know, they're the fully jaded idealists now made realists that reigns on every millennial's optimism. They marry the person that made the most sense for them. Then there's Generation X. They're independent, self-sufficient, doesn't like the authority, or what I like to tell my children as the man. Uh, they married their soulmate. Soulmate. Uh, that's a totally different sermon. Then there's millennials like myself that are ambitious, opportunistic, wannabe world changers who are quickly becoming jaded. Uh, they tend to vote for people like Bernie Sanders. But they married their best friend. Then there's the iGen, highly, highly tolerant, sexually polymorphous, digital natives, in a relationship with their smartphone. I only kid, though. I kid, okay? That's just a little kidding. They're not married to their smartphone. You see, with names come reputations and stories behind it. Those stories inform how we lean into the world. The Bible is a story of God's people and teaches them how to lean into their world. They're coming from the line of Shem, but God chooses and redeems them for the sake of the whole world. God chooses Israel for the sake of the whole world. Only in the Bible do we have a list of nations like this. Other ancient Near Eastern texts, they don't bother with other nations. Who cares about other people? But here we see this word nations, the Hebrew word goyim or ethne in Greek, which is translated into Gentile in Latin and how we get the word Gentile in our New Testament. We see this in verse 5, 20, 30, 32, and it will become important because God is interested not just in like little nation, the little nation of Israel. No, God is interested in Israel for the sake of the whole world. But in saving the nations, he's choosing one. 
He is showing his sovereignty, his right and might to rule over all nations. He saves the part in order to save the whole. So this list is to demonstrate God's sovereignty over the nations and his desire to save them. God's redeeming interest comes clear in Genesis 12 where God says to Abram that in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And it finds its fulfillment in Jesus when he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore, speaking to his disciples, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. For behold, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So what does this list demonstrate to us? Living in the age of coronavirus. It it reaffirms to us that God is interested in the whole world, in all nations, and his, his right to rule over it. Even the events that have caused so much anxiety is not unknown to God today. What is unknown to us doesn't catch God off guard. He's still ruling and reigning. The commenting on this, the writer of Deuteronomy says, The Most High gave the nations their inheritance when he divided all mankind, speaking about this instance. Paul, in the book of Acts, says, God determined the time set for them, the nations, and the exact places where they should live. It is God who determines, not our white knuckling, not our panic buying, not our social distancing, not our hoarding, It's not our avoidance of death. No, God determines. And that should be sweet relief for us. Because you don't have to be the Christ at this moment. This text showing that God is ruler of all nations, the rightful ruler of all nations, ought to calm and alleviate these fears. The one who trusts in the work of his own hands is one who will be put to shame. And so we see this juxtaposition and it sets up the rest of the Bible. We see that there are those who trust in their self and the other is a way of faith. We see one that trusts in the work of their own hands and the other trusts in the work of God's pierced hands. It shows us that there's two ways to live. One life in my name and the other is life in the name. A life of self-actualization and a life of faith. One where I am my own savior and the other where God is savior alone. One where I am my own Christ and the other where I am not the Christ. One where I save myself in the time of coronavirus and one where God reigns even in the midst of the virus. These two ways are set up as competing kingdoms in the rest of the Bible. We will see that very clearly in the next chapter when we talk about the Tower of Babel. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. So we have two choices. Life in my name or life in the name. Let us look at life in my name. Life in my name, this is the person that prays and says, My will be done. And not, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the person who lives, their, lives in their own name. 
They are a self-made person. They are the masters of their own destiny. They recite the poem Invictus as they're going to bed at night. They achieve by the power of their own hands. This way of life is self-protective, self-promoting, self-focused. In the end, this person is living the prototypical moralist lifestyle. They may be very religious, but it's religion that is predicated on the idea that I control my own destiny, that as long as I'm religious, God has to accept me. They do everything in their power to keep it together. They rarely confess a need for help. And you know this person. It is impossible for me at times to actually say, I need help. It almost feels like I am letting something escape out of prison out of my mouth whenever I say, can you help me? And then I'm like, ah, come back here. I'm like that. I'm like that. You know, I try to make myself busy or we do that. We're always high-functioning adults. We're always trying to double down on working hard. But there are also some of us who confess that faith, that, that, who confess faith, who say that we're Christians, but we functionally live the other way. We functionally live as people who are living by my own name, by my own reputation, by my own works. And we've all been lulled by the outside world into forgetting the sovereignty of God. In verse 19, there's a, or verse 9, there's an extended dialogue about the one who was a mighty hunter before the Lord. His name is Nimrod. I'm guessing his parents didn't like him or something. Um, Nimrod was said that he was a mighty hunter in the way it says, it says it twice, even in the sight of God, meaning that God must approve of his hunting skill. People were saying uh, God was probably impressed by how, uh, what a mighty warrior this guy is. Uh, that he, Nimrod, could even compete with God. So it says that Nimrod began his kingdom in Shinar, which would include Babel, which in chapter 11 would be a people who would make a name for themselves. Nimrod's name literally means we shall rebel. It is a self-made life, a life against God. And there's two ways that predominant, uh, two predominant ways to live life in your own name. There's the self-actualized way and the self-expressive way. The self-actualized way says, uh, is, is a person who puts their trust in their achievements. They control their own destiny by how much they work and how hard they work. So during the outbreak, this is the person feeling right now powerless because they're not able to work or control things. They're probably getting angry or frustrated at their kids. Um, I may be talking about myself at this point. Uh, they are sweating because of all the money they lost in the stock market. They're on edge. They're hoarding TP and hand sanitizer and stress eating a, flame, a bag of flaming Hot Cheetos because the world is going to end. But... Maybe this person has just forgotten that we really don't control the situation. And the biggest reminder that we have to say to the self-actualizing person is, and they have to say to themselves, and I have to say to myself, is when I look in the mirror is, I am not the Christ. I am not qualified enough to control anything in my life. I will be responsible with what I've got, but I, how much control do I actually have? The self-expressive person, though, this is the person that enjoys the experiences. 
uh, desires and enjoys freedom to do whatever they want without any authority telling them to do. And so now the idea of you know being told you have to social distance, you can't meet in groups of uh, of, of two hundred and fifty or plus, or you know you have to stay six feet from each other. You're trying to say you're, the person is probably saying, "What in the world? Who are you to tell me what to do?" I'm the only person who's able to tell myself what to do. You're not allowing me to live my best millennial life now. I am uh, uh, trying to get, have a great experience here, but you're not enabling me to actually do that. And so you'll look at everybody who is, uh, who is saying, saying that you should, you should probably not visit people. You should probably stop doing some of the things that you're doing. And you're prob- the, the self-expressive person will say, oh, you know what? You, you just... You're just like harshing me. You're a toxic person. You're awful. And that's the way a self-expressive person goes. You see, the problem with this way of life is that it's only illusion of control. Both the self-actualized person and the self-expressive person, we have lost our, our, our illusion of control. The problem with finding your, your life in the self is actually with yourself. The problem with finding life in your own name is the problem of your name. But in Christianity, we're told that you are free to love others and give of yourself because it isn't up to you. It isn't up to your name. In the end, your approval or all control is up to a name that is outside of you. And if you're included in that, if you're included in the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then that is yours. He's the only one cut out to save you when it really matters. Are you able to, to look at yourself and say, by, the, by my own name, my own reputation, I can be approved? The truth is, everyone looks at your life and knows your life well enough to say, you are struggling with your own self-guilt. You can't even meet your own judgment. How in the world are you going to meet the judgment of God? You need to give up your illusion of control. I need to give up my illusion of control. A few years ago, I had a discussion with one of my children who will go unnamed. They're probably giggling and wondering who this is right now behind the screens in my, in my uh, living room. It's okay. But... One of my children turns on the light in my car, and if you know, while you're in your vehicle at night and someone turns light on on the inside of your vehicle, suddenly the driver can't really see well. And so I turn around and say, hey, you need to turn that off. And they're like, but I can't see. You can't see. There's no light because they didn't think that I could see, so they turned on the light. And I said, hey, listen, I can see. I can be in control. But my child is saying, hey, listen, I'm scared. I'm freaked out. I need control. I need to be able to see. I need to have this light on. And I, and I gently just reached back there with my little crazy spaghetti arm and turned it off, right? And, and what I tried to impart to them at that moment and calm, as much calm as I could possibly give, is like, hey, dad can see. You don't have to see. Because in the end, you're not in control. I'm in control of this car. And the same goes for this world. The same goes for your life. Who's in control of life? Is it you? I don't think so. We're too ill-equipped. We're too underqualified to actually control our own lives. So what we need to do is turn the light off, 
be responsible for the little things that we could be responsible for and trust the Lord that he's actually driving it. So that's life in my name, but what about life in the name? Those who find life in the name are those who trust in God's work for them. They know that they're loved and accepted, not because of their work, but because of God's work. They are loved. They're loved just because he loves them. They are the people of the name. Shem means the name. I mean, it's trying to tell readers that you are saved because you are in the name. You are safe because you're in the name. And so the first listeners would know that through this line of Shem that they would be saved. That because from Shem comes Abram, from Abram comes Israel. And from Israel comes the one name who is above all names. So what about us? All of us are Gentiles. We're not in the name. So there's this doctrine of adoption. It says, uh, what is adoption? Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 34, says, what is adoption? And, you know, I'm nerding out here, just pow, preacher boy going off on his little rant. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number. We're received into the name and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. So, either we are judged by this self-made name, or will be judged by God's name. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses asks God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, God of your, The God of your fathers who has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall, we say, what, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. The divine name. Yahweh. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all generations. You see, the people of Israel were saved through the waters, saved through judgment. They escaped even though there was a lot of uncertainty and they were afraid because God was with them and they were covered by the name of the Lord. See, the Lord is the one who has true integrity. He's defined not just by who he is, like he gives himself little names, but no, but what he has done. So that's why these stories matter, because it's telling the reputation of the Lord God. It is not telling you to build your reputation in following or trying to be like God. No, you are like God because his reputation covers you, because he loves you. That's why. And so not only is he defined by steadfast love, no, he demonstrates steadfast love. So you'll find your life in his name. Here's the question. Are you going to find life in your name or is it going to be in his name? Is it going to be the ongoing, never-ending performance of the reputation of your name? Or is it going to be in the finished work and reputation and the fame of our Lord Jesus Christ in his name? See, people who ultimately know that their name is saved by Jesus and in, in, in the book of life are free to lose it. They could take on the marks of the family of God. We could sacrifice. We can give. We can love and not expect anything in return. 
during a plague, Dionysius, around 260 AD, talked about the Christian response as this. Many, heedless of danger, took charge of the sick, ministering to them in Christ, and many departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected with the disease, taking on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and painfully and accepting their pains. Many, in the nursing and curing of others, transferred their, their deaths to themselves and died in their stead. This is the story of the family, the story of the name. And for you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is your story. This is your family story. This is his name. Peter says, This Jesus, the stone that, you reje- that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. And Paul it says in Philippians 2, 1 through 11, talking about the marks of the family. How are, we, how are we to live because we've been saved in the name? What does it look like? He says this, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of, and of one mind. Do nothing at a selfish ambition. Uh, including hoarding TP, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant as yourselves. Let each of you look not unto our own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, the name of God, to the glory of God the Father. It is only in this name that we're given a new story. Not a story of self-preservation, not one of, but rather one, we are given a story of self-sacrifice. So how can we help during this crisis? Don't give in to fear. Be gracious, loving, confident that you are loved and you are preserved and you are cared for. And just as Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb on the third day, so you will be resurrected in glory, as it says. And that is good news. So you live into that new creation, that new life. Know that God is sovereign and in control and you are not. And so what do you do? You call friends. You pray for people over the phone. You become a steady, non-anxious presence in this time of anxiety. You go to work and you love people while, while disinfecting your workspace. You go for a hike with someone six feet apart, but you go on a hike with someone. You bring someone groceries, you drive someone to work, you give emergency child care. Because your story, the reputation of your life is not determined by your name, but it is his name 
and his name on you. You see, Macy had a last name, and her story is initially one of rejection and not being wanted, so she lived like it. She lost her father at two from addiction, loses her mother at 11 to addiction. She would witness constant drug use, and she was physically abused. As a toddler, a high fever would end up taking her hearing, and so she was deaf and a target for bullying. And so she lived a life of someone who wanted attention, but was always constantly unwanted, unloved. So she's always anxious in her person and always acting out of that. And so in she, in the custody of her aunt, her aunt ended up leaving her to become a ward of the state at 15. She was unwanted, unloved. She entered foster care. Even though she had shelter and medical care, she lacked being noticed, being chosen, being loved. So she's about to age out. She's almost 18. But one woman notices her. It sees her every day. Gigi Keen, Keen is her name. Gigi was a school counselor, has a wonderful family. Not perfect, but it's wonderful. And when she heard Marcy t- Macy tell her story, and she heard Macy say, no one wants to adopt me. Who would want me? Who would want me? Gigi wanted her. Gigi wanted her. So only six weeks before she aged out, Macy received a new last name, a new story, last name of Keen. No longer is she unwanted and unloved. She was a Keen. And so goes for our story. We're not unwanted. We're not unloved. We don't have to live by the power and might of our own hands but we live on the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that gives us life. So it goes for all of us. God looks on us, and he wants us. At the cross, Jesus, God's only son, is judged with the judgment we deserve so we could be his children. And in Jesus' resurrection, we're given a new life, a new name, and we live life according to that name. And in this time where death seems to be impeding all around us, we live new life. We are God's children and have the opportunity to demonstrate that loving compassion of self-sacrifice, the compassion of a father in heaven who looks down on his people and says, all these names, I want them. We live out of this true story. We don't live one out of one of fear and anxiety, not knowing what's going to happen because we know the ultimate truth that God looks on us and sees Jesus Christ and accepts us because of his name and his reputation and that we are loved, cared for, and accepted that you are embraced in the arms of your Lord Jesus Christ. So therefore go out without fear and care for people, love people, take appropriate steps, Be gracious and merciful because your God in heaven is gracious to you. You can have a quiet and wise confidence now. Quiet and wise, not in your own hands, but in the hands of our loving Father. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, let us sing loudly and boldly 
to the one in whom our confidence rests. Be with us now. Be with our families so that we would be a healing, non-anxious presence in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.